Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. To discover more amazing Alberta-made podcasts, visit albertapodcastnetwork.com. This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast was done remotely, of course, as we engage in social distancing. And so there are a few glitches in the audio because my internet connection at home isn't amazing. I hope you'll suffer through them for a really great conversation. Enjoy the show. I'm Dave Cornoyer, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode remotely on April 26, 2020, and I'm thrilled to be joined by our, our handsome producer, Adam Rosenhart. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Adam. And we are thrilled to be joined by our special guest today, Zane Velji, campaign strategist and vice president strategy at Norweather. And, and Zane is based in Calgary. Welcome to the podcast, Zane. What's up, guys? I mean, listen, let me tell you something before we get started. I would have gone with handsome and dashing because I can see him <laughs> and I know him personally and his personality. And I feel like that was a missed opportunity. So wow. I just want to throw that in there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one too many compliments, but we'll beat you down later. On. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, I, I was going to make a compliment about his voice, something like, uh, is, is baritone the right word? I don't know if yeah, I'm a baritone. Yeah. I, I, I didn't take any I didn't take any music or anything related to, to musical literacy, so I have no idea. I just think oh. it's sexy. I'd go with sexy myself. <laughs> but wow! If only uh, your listeners could see that I'm blushing. But uh, you know, this is this has gotten off on a much nicer note than your old podcast, The Strategist Zane. I was expecting a little more punchiness. Yeah, I mean, I've I've become soft. Is what you mean to say, and the answer is correct. Uh, yeah, so so you know, uh, if, if if your listeners don't know who I am, which they shouldn't, because why would they? Um, uh, my background is is working in, on campaigns in the past, uh, an entry campaign here in 2017, uh, which was supposed to be the campaign that was a sure thing to win, and then became very close. So if you ever have a candidate that's supposed to win by 40, and you want them to win by 10, I'm your guy. Um, and also. Uh, you know, hosting the Strategist podcast, which was a podcast we did. You know, it's been four years since we last did it. Um, and people still talk to me about it. But we we had a podcast myself uh, and two incredibly smart guys, smarter than me, Cor uh, Corey Hogan and Stephen Carter, talking about the strategy of, of politics day to day uh, in, in our province and in our country. So I used to host that podcast a long time ago. So I guess what I'm trying to tell you is I'm, I'm a has-been guy. So thank you. I, I was, I'm a big get. <laughs> but also has been. It's remarkable. I, I still see with with um, relative frequency people on Twitter being like, when are you bringing back the strategist, guys? Yeah, and the answer, we actually do not know. There has been internally, I could give you some strategist insider uh, info. There have been a several false starts. There was like a couple after Corey left to go work for the government because he's selfish. Um, we Carter and I tried, but we didn't have... Uh, either the skill or the talent um, to, to, to put it together because Corey produced it, so to speak. That's a very, very loose term of producing. And then we had some false starts in between, but we'll see. We'll see what, what, if, if it ever comes back. Um, I think it'll be a surprise to myself when it does as well. That'd be a that'd be a hell of a live show event in Calgary, Zane. I would come to Calgary after this this pandemic's over to watch the three of you uh, bring the strategist back. Yeah, a reunion. A oh, reunion see, I thought, I thought... <laughs> I thought you were saying do a live show as like a pandemic protest. See who would show up to sit <laughs> less than six feet from each other as a direct protest of current measures, which is actually more on brand for the podcast. I love that idea. Do a live show next week <laughs> and see who shows up. 
I would still, I would still probably come to Calgary for that. You, you'll get a, <laughs> a, a, you guys would get a, a sternly worded reprimand from Dr. Hinshaw, I'm sure. Oh, that is, that is, uh, that is sad to know that that was my peak. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, while we're, we're musing and mulling about a, a strategist reunion, which I'm sure would be, you know, would be the, the, the hit of the week. Um, you're on the ground in Calgary, Zane. So we, both Adam and I are at Edmonton and, you know, as, as much as we try, we, you know, we talk about, we talk about Edmonton a lot because we're both based in Edmonton. Um, give us a, can you give us a picture of how things are on the ground in Calgary right now, politically, because Edmonton and Calgary are they're you know, we're both obviously both in Alberta, but we're both very unique cities with very, very uniquely different cities uh, with different types of political environments and, and different voting patterns. Um, but, we're facing with with the current situation, COVID nineteen. Uh, Calgary has certainly been hit the hit a lot harder than Edmonton with the economic situation. Both cities are being hit hard, but Calgary's been in this in this situation for you know a little while longer with the with the hit on hit on to downtown Calgary and the international price of oil falling five or six years ago. Um, so, what what does the landscape look like in Calgary from your vantage point right now? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question because I think there's so many ways to answer it. Well, let me and let me start with one you just mentioned, which is the fact is to be totally blunt, COVID is cloud cover for a really bad situation in our city, and and COVID itself is an unbelievable, unprecedented situation. So it takes a lot for me to say that because you know COVID is is entering the zeitgeist in this time, you know. Six, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago now in a, in a real true fashion where, you know, if we did not have this pandemic afflicting our city here, all we would be talking about this entire podcast would be about unemployment and the price of oil. That's all we would be talking about is if you had a Calgary focus on it, right? What is Nenshi going to do? What does this mean to, to, to taxation? What does this mean to economic diversification? And we can talk about all of that, certainly. But this COVID situation has created almost this, this mask on on this larger um, issue in Calgary, where once the dust settles, once we return back to now the best cliched phrase we're all heard, uh, the new normal, I would not be surprised if we have 33% unemployment, if we have 45 plus uh, uh, percentage unemployment for youth uh, in this in this city, because things were bad, and this has just accelerated the bad in certain ways. And I think that's the big sort of learning that I've, I've kind of observed and seen people much smarter than me make is that COVID itself has not necessarily created any new trends, but it's accelerated trends. So whichever direction you as a society in your, in your city or your province or your regionality or your country we're heading into, COVID has accelerated it. So some of the macro trends we're going to see come out of this, we're talking about like AI, automation, gig workers, what the future of that is. It's accelerated and, and, and really highlighted the vulnerabilities of some of the, the things we've been doing, our, our capitalist system, for example, in some ways, many people calling it a house of cards. It always has been, but this has provided exposure. And I think what's what it's done here in Calgary in specific is that firms, companies, businesses, or organizations that had already met a downward trajectory now had an accelerant. And I've now seen COVID provide that accelerant. And it's provided to many some cloud cover to say, if we're going to shut down as a, as a restaurant or as a yoga studio or as a, as, a, as a small business because our runway was six months and now it's three weeks, well, crap, let's just do it because no one's going to say that your business failed because of COVID and it's going to label you as a failure as a result. So you're going to see a bunch of that. The question is, how much? 
right? And I don't know. And, and I, I know I'm getting more into like the business side than the political side. I'll get to that in a second. But I think it's really important to understand from like the, the Calgary uh, business and the Calgary sort of employment lens where things might stand. And like I said, I would not be surprised if we have 33% unemployment on the back end of this thing, whatever we call and whenever we call the back end of this thing happening. The second part of it is, is really looking at, you know, what Calgary may look like going forward. What does this relate to in terms of a policy? We're going to see a municipal election that people are already preparing for. Uh, does anyone even want to run municipally in a city, right? Like, and I, and I mean anyone, but anyone of, of heft, anyone of, of policy sort of mind and future ambition want to run uh, to try to get a city that might face these, uh, these outcomes um, going forward. So we're really going to be faced ourselves with a few questions. The last thing I'd say, is I talked about the the the, 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 the sort of uh, employment business sort of lens, what the political future municipally could look like, which we can discuss more if you guys want to. But the third thing I really think is is fascinating about Calgary is as summer rolls around, we're going to see this this enhanced sort of uh, elements of of people looking at different regions across the country, different cities across the province. There's even been rumors that Edmonton and Calgary may have different economic open dates, so to speak, because of our case count being so much higher than yours. And what is that going to do in terms of FOMO and restlessness? And how is that going to compound to the already existing situation? If you're telling me that you guys sitting in Edmonton, I'm not saying I know this, open up two weeks or three weeks in advance or four weeks in advance because your case count is getting lower or certain activities are allowed in your city that are not allowed in mine. And then you have these additional stressors on Calgarians. That is a really strange sort of Petri dish of, of something that could happen that I'm not saying will, but it's really interesting to see as you're seeing this, this sort of um, dissension and a little bit of uh, anxiety and stress coming out of people. Yeah, I, I do think, I mean, there's a lot to, I mean, a lot to unpack there. I think that the, going, going back to your, your comment about the economy, about the, the COVID situation kind of uh, providing cloud cover, or at least a distraction from the economic situation, at least in the, in the news headlines. I mean, I think one of the things that surprised a lot of people, shocked a lot of people, was the the negative price of oil that came yeah. out just over these, these past few weeks. I think at one point, the price of oil was trading, or the West, Western Canadian Select was trading at, I think, minus 15 or minus, uh, minus 60 cents, which is, I mean, just mind-boggling when you think that, that only a few months ago, I mean, only a month ago, the provincial government passed a budget where its projected estimates for the, the price of oil were around $52 a barrel, or was it $52 or $58 a barrel? And I understand the price of oil can change. It's probably not, you know, I mean, it, the, the price of oil may go back up into the 30 or 40 range or higher. Who knows? Uh, but, I mean, this really sends a, a, a shockwave to to the economy and, and, and Albertans' perception of what our, our dominant resource is and how much we value it. I, one of the things I've commented on, on the, this podcast before, and, and you, you alluded to uh, what might, what coming out of this, what, what it might look like coming out of this in terms of, of AI, in terms of tech. Um, we rely so heavily in this province on the oil and gas sector. And it seems that when, even when it fails us, not due, to, not necessarily due to us, but due to external factors, the international price of oil, which we have basically no control over. We've always seemed to just double down on it, rather than actually, actually seriously look at the kind of diversification that we might need. And I mean, when we talk about diversification, we talk about it, and you can talk about it in terms of the economy, in terms of jobs, but it's also the, the other element of it is talking at, talking about it in terms of government revenue. 
and how over-reliant uh, Alberta governments for the past 70 years, really, I think going back to the 50s, going back to the social credit era, have been on revenues from oil and gas royalties. And I mean, it would seem that now would be the time to, you know, or as we exit this COVID situation uh, and have to take a serious look at, it, at the economic situation and look at the, and look at these potential potentially skyrocketing uh, unemployment numbers, now would be the time to to try to figure out okay, well, how can we stop this? How can we at least provide a, a, a decent buffer? If not, if not, you know, I'm not saying abandoning oil and gas, but, but move, transitioning and shifting away from oil and gas, how do we provide a buffer so we don't get hit like this again in the future? Um, I think that's, that's one interesting, one interesting uh, situation. And, and also your, your comment about the municipal election next year, I think that's going to be really interesting because we don't know what the, political situation, what the political landscape is going to look like a month from now. We don't know what it's going to look like 12 months or, or 13 months from now when, when candidates actually start to get out on the ground and start campaigning. Um, like I'm sure, I mean, I know here in Edmonton, there's been a lot of discussion about, about the mayoral election, about the city mm -hmm, council mm -hmm. election um, and who's going to run. But I think you're right. I, I think a lot of the candidates who maybe six months ago, we thought, okay, well, in Edmonton, if Don Iveson isn't going to seek re-election, I think councillor X, Y, and Z are probably going to run for for mayor, but I mean, I'm, I'm not totally sure that's the case anymore. I think that there's uh, there's a lot left open in the air right now. Yeah, I mean, so many things you brought up, right? So let me react to a few of them. Uh, on the municipal side, I think you make a very interesting point. Like one of the behaviors that we're seeing socially that I think will extend to politics is this what we call like a steady state behavior. A lot of people who are into entrepreneurialism or thought it was sexy and where they wanted to go with their career are now like, oh shit, maybe I should take a job at IBM because at least it's a steady paycheck because this has really exposed a vulnerability of what cash flow looks like in an entrepreneurial sort of business. So maybe they're like, okay, we need to go steady state. And people who are maybe had more of an appetite politically to experiment, to think about other options, to say that things are okay now, so we can take a little bit of a jolt to the system to accelerate or change our inflection point, might also have the same feeling about steady state. Let's just try to survive, right? Let's just try to have the baseline. And as, as us, as people listening to this have had to readjust budgets at home, have had to readjust how we work at home, have had to readjust what kind of normalcy looks like. It's really trying to find a new baseline. So the question is, how much risk tolerance does the average consumer have, you know, for their own budget, their own lifestyle, their own sort of livelihood? And how will that extend to their politics? How much risk and tolerance do they have for anything beyond the status quo? Which kind of brings me to the, the argument, maybe the other side of the point, which is if you are a person right now looking to get engaged, in something that has social value uh, in, in our society. I cannot think of something more important than, than civil society or government right now, because this moment is seemingly starting to look like the moment that the policy is gonna be set in the next two to five years that will affect not just the next decade, but the next generation. And we saw this in the 60s and 70s in all orders of government. We're kind of living with the residual policies of, 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 of a bygone era that kind of find themselves entrenched uh, and now are, are seemingly looking like they're unstable. I feel like the new set of policies on the federal level, on the provincial level, and on the municipal level will be set with this new era. So if you're a young person now, if you're someone looking to get engaged in civil society or in politics, man, oh man, is now the time to be at the table and have a seat there. Because the decisions and the policies that will be set on the back end of, 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 this, uh, of this pandemic, I honestly feel like will affect a generation, if not more. 
Like we're going to be having massive conversations about what a mixed market economy looks like. We've already seen across the world that in a crisis, there are no more capitalists left. Everyone's a socialist. Every company's putting out their hand. Every person, even, you know, even if they're guilt ridden and they're a hardcore right wing conservative, is fine taking a $2,000 check from the federal government. And, and frankly, as they should, this is crazy what we're in right now. But what we're also seeing is what will stay on the back end of this? What will be the new normal? Are we actually going to be wanting a more robust social safety net? What does this mean for our future taxation policy? Have we fundamentally changed our appetite because we've now become more aware about what it looks like to maybe be homeless and how your two unlucky bounces away from living in a shelter. Much, many more people in this country can now empathize with some of those situations that were ever, you know, um, that ever were able to before. So I feel like, you know, when you talk about government, uh, both on the municipal side for our two cities, but also on the macro, oh my God, like now is an amazing time to start thinking about, like if you're, if you're in that headspace, it could be an amazing time to think about government. And I'm taking you off track, but I wanted to make mention of that as well. I was going to say, I think that's a good, that's, that's a good point. And, and, uh, I mean, looking at this, I mean, this is a period of incredible disruption in society, and it is it is an opportunity for a reset and a potential realignment. And I really wonder what that's going to look like. Um, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, we, we get to decide that. See, that's absolutely. the thing, right? Like if we're at the table, right, if, if there's a group of people who've been flirting with politics or, or flirting with public policy and thinking about whether they should put their name on a ballot or, or apply for that job in the bureaucracy, now your voice has a disproportionate chance of creating policy that really sets the arc of, of a city or a country more so than it ever has. I fundamentally believe that just by looking at the time and space we're in. You know, and, and if I can just make one sort of sort of closing comment to like bracket this this sort of thing that you brought up, which is around oil and and, and this government. I think we have to be totally clear. The budget that this that this last budget passed was the, the paper that it was written on is worthless. Right. So if you're an organization or if you're a nonprofit or if you're even a government agency waiting for some of that cash from this budget to come through or some of those promises to come through, do not count on it. It very well may, but do not count on it because it's not worth the paper it was written on. This crisis has changed everything. And I brought up the term cloud cover. This crisis and this pandemic has given the Kenny government cloud cover to reset anything in whichever direction they please. Right. So as we're in it right now, they're, they're doing the things and they're kind of chugging along with the federal government, so to speak, as related to doing, uh, you know, and, 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 and spending a bit more than they would have. But let's not be surprised if, if their next budget is austerity to the max like we've never seen before. Or they, or they come out after the, the, the dust settles on this and say that we've spent too much. We need to go in the total opposite direction. Will that harm the recovery? I believe so. But do not be surprised because it gives them the justification uh, to do that. And let's also be clear, right? Like this government also has not let this, this crisis or this moment go to waste. They've just used it on things that have appealed to their base. So rather than spending it on economic diversification and spending it on saying, oh, the streets are quiet. Let's spend more on infrastructure right now as Israel and other European countries have recently been doing. They've been able to, like, for example, I'm just looking at this, this piece the other day where countries in Europe, because the streets are so uh, quiet uh, and, and, and in a manner that's unprecedented, they've been able to do major infrastructure projects in weeks rather than in months because they've been able to close things down and it hasn't made a difference. Smart. Uh, so rather than spending that political capital, this crisis, using it on things like, in our case, economic diversification, providing a new sort of version of, of, of education and, and retooling for people, they've spent it on you know, firing teachers, arguing with doctors, doing other things that in any other era in our politics would, we, would still be all we're talking about, right? If, if this was normal times, our, our podcast today still might be about 
all these uh, you know teachers being fired in the midst of of, of this uh, in an unprecedented manner uh, alongside the fight with the doctors alongside the price of oil but instead what we're talking about is this concept of covid that kind of covers all of it uh, and kind of clouds all of it so this government has not let this crisis go to waste they've just spent that political capital so to speak in in a very different direction yeah no i i'd agree i think that that i mean they they've slowed some of it down but it seems like they've accelerated in in some aspects uh, one, I mean, it's been one year since the Kenny government was elected. We just celebrated. Well, some people, some people celebrated the one-year anniversary uh, at the end of April in uh, in, uh, in 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 Alberta um, of the UCP being uh, being elected and defeating the NDP. Um, my impression of of the United Conservative Party in the 2019 election. I mean, they released a very large platform document that that very very clearly in some in in a lot of aspects laid out exactly what they wanted to do and it was one of the most i mean it, it was one of the most ideological plat party platforms i've ever seen in this province um and they've gone forward and they began they began to implement it they, they began to implement their platform and it seems like they haven't aside from delaying some aspects of of the of the their platform promises and their budget platform promises they haven't really skipped a beat and i think you're right i think they are there is there is certainly an element of taking advantage of a crisis and and i mean i, I wrote on my uh, on my blog a few weeks ago that uh, the referring to the uh the winston churchill quote of never letting a good crisis go to waste mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and i find it, it's it's interesting jason kenny he's he's very much trying to emulate uh, he refers to Winston Churchill quite a bit. He refers to the the COVID nineteen pandemic as uh, as, uh, as the uh, or similar to the uh, the bombing of London during the Second World War, and that's the the justification he uses for the legislature to continue for them to continue to pass uh, pass legislation uh, through an expedited process that. A lot, a lot of the legislation has nothing to do with the COVID situation. It's simply mm -hmm. continu continuing their political agenda. And I think you're right, using using cloud cover. And I, I, I do worry that that when we get out on the other end of this, uh, when when the pandemic has passed and, and the economy is allowed to reopen and we're allowed to at least return to some semblance of normality in our lives, that that politically they will simply just continue to implement a political agenda uh, that was that they were elected on a year ago, but we're we, that we they they're now governing and we now exist will now exist in a completely different political environment and and I mean I think that that this is the type of this is the type of thing that they're going to be moving forward on. Yeah, and I'm curious to know if 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 you guys think he's got enough enough support within that base and that ring around his 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 core base to kind of move in that direction. That's what I don't have a good read on, right? Like if if an election were held tomorrow and there's a campaign. I feel like the NDP could have a chance because we're in this situation. We're in like a crisis situation. People always become a little bit more socialist to varying degrees uh, around sort of government support and a robust safety net. My my concern is, okay, let's say we have a return to the status quo in about a year uh, and, they, and then they pass a very hardcore austerity budget. What will we say as Albertans? Will we be okay with that? Of course, there'll be a group of us, right? And I'll, I'll full disclosure, I worked on the, the Notley and the NDP campaign last election. So I, my, my political allegiances kind of went the other way uh, uh, in, the, in, that in that election. Um, but the question I have is, what does it look like in terms of us standing up um, for our province? Because while we may not have a culture of, of outright advocacy and protest, these times I think are, to my earlier point, are going to set policy for not just decades, but I think a generation. Uh, 
And if people start realizing that, uh, what will our level of protest look like? What will our level of pushback look like? Um, should this government want to go with a version of austerity that could put things in the hole even more? Um, and I don't know. I'm curious to get your take on that from what you've seen um, behaviorally, from what you've seen in your in your years kind of following uh, Alberta politics. I'm not sure that many Albertans, and it probably depends on where you're located in the province, are necessarily connecting the dots. Um, my little brother lives in rural Alberta in Sundry, and you know his wife is a is a nurse, and so they have you know opinions about the government that probably wouldn't surprise you. But as as rural physicians, just by way of example, are talking about leaving um, their practices yeah. because it's no longer profitable. Um, I've been told the reaction, at least in that town, is, "Oh, those doctors are greedy. It's not mm. the government's doing the wrong thing." There, it's almost like, you know, they couldn't, voters couldn't possibly um, imagine saying something bad about a, a conservative government in spite of what's happening in their community. I mean, and, and I think you bring up the point that that is just becoming truer and truer in politics, which is you choose a side and then you only source the evidence that justifies the worldview you've already bought into. Right. So anything wrong about the UCP or the NDP, right, depending on which where you say or the liberals federally, you will only source the information that that validates your thesis, uh, not the other way around. And I think above and beyond that, it's an emotional decision people have made. So so my question was, wasn't necessarily, you know, uh, rhetorical, but it, it, it to me kind of says that I think despite his, you know, uh, his his plummeting sort of approval ratings in the midst of this crisis, uh, the fact is, I still think he's got enough of, of, of a political base to kind of move these things through if he wants to. Um, the question is, what happens to us, right? Like as a, as a group of Albertans, and I, and I don't mean to get like romantic about this or like, but there's a real case to be made that, that a, a element of a, a pandemic, large scale unemployment, um, a, 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 a city province sort of model that seems to be broken and has not been repaired for decades, one could argue in terms of, you know, cities still being uh, reporting to provinces combined with a provincial government that even in its most starkest reality of saying, okay, it's a crisis, let's put the ideology aside, let's introduce the PST, let's bring a new taxation structure that tries to make things a little bit more equal, let's keep funding social support programs. If they don't do that, will we experience uh, uh, for at least those who are knowledge workers in our province, will we start experiencing a brain drain on a level that we've never seen before? And I, and I am projecting into the future, but we're seeing tinklings of this. You just talked about the doctors, right? They, ultimately, what are they saying? This is too much work. We're not getting paid enough. We can move, right? We literally can go to any other province and find a gig. I think there's a bunch of other people, despite our economic downturn in this province, that, that have that option. Will they be paying a little bit more for cost of living if they go to a Vancouver and Toronto? Sure. But could they figure it out? I think so. And if the situation here is, is bad to the point where it affects them, like it's starting to now affect their livelihood, their ability to live, their ability to raise their kids, the security and, and, and the, the, the sort of robust community they need to do that. Man, I, 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 I don't think a brain drain of a certain kind, tell me if I'm being alarmist, I'm curious to hear you guys, is, is, is out of the question. I, I think that there are a number of professions, I mean, uh, physicians, doctors are one. Registered nurses are another. I mean, these are mm. these are professions where there is international demand, 
where these types of professionals can essentially go work. They can find jobs anywhere in the world. So if it's not, if it's not, uh, if the if the the job environment and the political environment in Alberta is not good, not treating them well, and they don't have any reason to stay here, they can they can they can and will go elsewhere. And I think that the the cuts that the government recently made to or can, they're, they're continuing to implement to universities and colleges, um, it just seems like. I mean, this is an example of, of continuing uh, a, a pre-COVID agenda um, throughout this crisis. It just seems incredibly tone deaf to, to yeah. lay off hundreds of workers at SATE and Nate, lay off hundreds of workers at the University of Alberta and, and what we expect at the University of Calgary and University of Lethbridge. Um, I mean, these are, we, we need these types of you know these types of jobs. We need this more of this types of education. And, and I mean, this, the government has, this government has focused a lot on 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 trades on encouraging young albertans to enter the trades which is great but they've seemed to have done it uh and they don't they don't say this but they but but when 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 they talk about the trades they 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 do there's uh they, they leave the impression that they're talking uh talking down universities that university education it probably you know when they talk up the trades, they talk down. They talk down universities, and I think they're showing that with these cuts. and And I, I think that you know we probably need both. and 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 talking about you know talking about the the value of trades uh, doesn't need to be done at the detriment of of university education. I mean, we we need the creativity. We need uh, research and development. The, the kind of things that universities can spurn off. Uh, if if we're going to, I think if we're going to, if we're going to get out of this economic crisis, we're not just going to need the trades. Oh, you're you're absolutely right. I'm so glad you brought up that point. I think there's two things. Number one, to the point of 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 workers like doctors and nurses who have a global demand and can move anywhere. I absolutely agree. There's also a second category. It's the category of people uh, like us, I would argue, or people like us who spent the last what four weeks, five weeks working at home, and it hasn't really changed our ability to interact. It hasn't really changed. Our workflow hasn't changed our productivity. And these people are now asking, well, okay, my job might be here in Alberta, but can I move to BC? Can I move elsewhere? Can I live in Costa Rica? These are actually serious questions people are asking because of the acceleration of remote work now just entering our lives in an unprecedented universal way for many people, right? They're now saying, I'll leave this place. So even if they're going to pay taxes here, the, the missing point is we lose another person who does not contribute to our civil society here? Who does not contribute back to the community with their presence, with their family, uh, with their with their with their sort of their love and care for that community? And and like I said, I don't mean to get romantic about that, but you do that on a certain scale, and you lose out on a really core critical uh, fabric of of society that keeps things moving. So I think that's the first point. The second point here is is this concept of like what it looks like going forward when we are in this situation of um, of having a government. That just that just is uh, frankly concerned about their base, and you might see further polarization kind of coming from that going forward. And I think that's what I'm worried about is just a group of people, uh, because at the end of the day, we make our decisions uh, based on not centralized institutions that tell us what to do, but what is acceptable with the small network of people that we place our trust in, our friends, our family, those around us. That's who we model our behavior on. That's where the trust comes from. And if you start seeing certain social networks thinking about this, right? And I'm sure, right, I can almost place a bet that conversations between a group like ours probably have increased tenfold of people just spontaneously asking, do you still want to live in this province? Are you still, how married are you to Alberta? Or like, 
you know, have you guys thought about moving elsewhere? And it's increased for me, I know, guaranteed. I'd be curious to hear for you guys too. You have that happen at scale and it starts becoming real to a certain factor. And so it's, it's going to be a really interesting time to see if, if people put up a fight and say, no, this is my province too, or if people start thinking about uh, other models of, of what uh, the future of this province could look like, which may include themselves not in it. Dave, have you had the conversation about uh, staying in Alberta with any of your uh, close friends, family, or peers? You, you know what? My, my family has been in Alberta since the 1890s, since before it was even a province. Um, my, uh, my, my, yeah. Uh, so Alberta is my home. It's where most of my family is. Uh, pretty much all my family is here. Um, but it's, but we have had discussions. My wife and I have talked about, uh, you know, relocating, not necessarily about, not, but the conversations aren't necessarily about the political climate, but it's about the, the weather and the climate in general. When, <laughs> when, 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 when you get to February or March uh, and, you know, it's the bleakest time of winter uh, and it doesn't look, you know, it's d- darkest before the dawn. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you definitely think that, you know, maybe this would be a, this would be, this would be a, a little nicer if we were on the Sunshine Coast or if we were, uh, you know, in Victoria or somewhere on the island where the, where the climate is a little better. That's definitely a, a conversation that we regularly have. But, but politically, it, is, it de- definitely is something that, that we do think about, that if, if we are in an era of, um, you know, of these types of pol- conservative governments that are so focused on austerity, um, it, you know, not to say that other provinces don't elect governments like this. I mean, British Columbia definitely elects very conservative governments from time to time. Uh, but uh, I mean, yeah, it is definitely a definitely a, a conversation of you know, do we want to do we want to raise our kids here if they're uh, if we are going to be living in a place where we have a government that doesn't value public education, doesn't value strong public education, uh, and that that trickles down to the school board level, and the school boards have you know are going to be give, going to be given limited. Uh, limited resources to provide the type of education. If we have a government that 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 is focusing on valuing on homeschooling and focusing and valuing on private education uh, before public education, is that the kind of place that I want to raise my kids? And and you know that's definitely something something that we have to think about. Think about what do we love about this province? Uh, you know this this so-called Alberta advantage that we've had of 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 excellent. You know, I mean, low low taxes is the one that can the stuff that conservatives like to talk about, but excellent public services, which is something that mm-hmm. we've, we've really uh, we've really been very lucky to have. Excellent public health care system in this province. Excellent public education system. Um, uh, you know, if that's not something that's going to, if that looks like it's in danger, and it, you know, and we fight, you know, it, it, and we fight against it, but but we're not able to stop stop the cuts. Uh, is that something that is that a, does that create an environment where we want to stay and and yeah, I've had that conversation with uh, with quite a few people over the past over the past few months, and and uh, and it is troubling because, you know, I, I Zane, the th- the thing you talked about about people talking up to their peer groups and mm-hmm. Re- mm-hmm. reinforcing their views, you know, by whatever it is, searching out news news sources or searching out online sources that that confirm uh, confirm your bias and confirm your 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 views. I mean, I think I think that is troubling, and I and I do see that on. It's not just a conservative, not just a conservative problem. It's something that happens on on both sides of the political spectrum, and I can definitely see. Um, you know, there are, there are NDP supporters who do the exact same thing, and I mean, we call you call this, uh, or we not you not you specifically, but I mean the term. Uh, we we heard a number of years ago Harper derangement syndrome and you know mm-hmm. your Trudeau derangement system and you absolutely definitely had Notley derangement system and you definitely have Kenny derangement system people who 
just absolutely uh, revile uh, their, the, the, the leaders of the, of the political parties that they oppose. And I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, sometimes our political leaders give us a lot to revile for sure. And they, and they earn that reputation. Uh, but, uh, but to base your whole life and your whole identity around politics and, and not necessarily what you are, but who you oppose, I, th I think is, is quite dangerous. And it's, I mean, obviously it's something, not something that we just see in Alberta. We see it in the United States. They're basically leading it. Um, but, uh, but I do, I do, I do find that, ex that extremely troubling. Um, the other point I wanted to raise is Adam, you talked about, son you talked about your, your family who live in rural Alberta. I have family who live in rural Alberta as well. Um, most of them are, are, I mean, I'm not outing them, but they're probably liberals or new Democrats, honestly. Um, but, uh, uh, I do wonder about the political competitiveness in this province. And if we're going to have a, a competitive election in 2023, I mean, 20, 2015 was, it was a, ended up being a very competitive election. 2019, not as competitive, but the mold was broken. And I think that the, the one thing that I, that I, the one piece of hope that I took away from 2015 and 2019 is that perhaps we finally have a, competitive electoral system and competitive political system in this province where you know what we can throw out we see governments get thrown out every four to eight years and that's something that regularly happens like happens everywhere else in this province rather than having 40 years of of one party majority governments and i mean we're still early times it's only been one year since the last election but i look at three years down the road and i wonder what can the ndp do to break the ucp's hold of rural Alberta? What can they do to break the UCP's hold of Calgary so that they can actually be in contention to form government in, in, in 2023, or at least make it a competitive election? And, and I, 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 you know, I have a really hard time. Rural Alberta is, is going to be such a hard nut to crack for, for the NDP, uh, especially, I mean, even with uh, all the things that, that the UCP has done around, uh, around rural physicians. I mean, we're just, we're, we are just in the first year of the, of, of their mandate. And we all know, I mean, anybody who follows government and follows, follows policy knows you, you know, you implement your most controversial policies early on in your mandate. And then by the time year three rolls around, you start handing out the checks and you start showing up and kissing babies and, and handing out, uh, you know, candy at local parades and hosting your barbecues um, and hope that people forget the more controversial, uh, controversial aspects. But I do wonder what, and I mean, maybe Zane, you know, I mean, you could provide some thoughts on this, but, but I mean, in terms of creating a political environment and maybe, maybe you can't speak to rural Alberta, but Calgary where the UCP did really well, um, you know, what would it take to create a competitive provincial political environment in Calgary? Oh God. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, you took away hope from 2019. I think there was some hope to be taken away. What is it overall? 40% of Albertans voted for the NDP, right? So if you're a progressive person or a center left person, um, that's a very strong number. And in fact, it's almost identical to the number that voted for the NDP in 2015, percentage wise. Uh, the only difference was, was that we had the PC and Wild Rose split up uh, in 2015. And we don't have that situation that, that manifested in 2019, which meant that in 2023, how many rural seats are there? Like 30 some odd, 35, mm -hmm. 36. Mm -hmm. UCP start with a 36 to nothing lead on election night and a majority government is 44, which means that they need another, you know, eight to 10 seats across Edmonton, Calgary, Fort McMurray, Lethbridge, Medicine Hat to win the election. Seems quite doable. 
So the, to your question, I mean, I, I think it's important to lay out the math because if you're if you're down 37 nothing, you can't do anything in rural Alberta. It makes it really tough. Um, what did the NDP need? Another party would be important. Another party that's strong, that can take a center-right uh, vote. I mean, many people thought the Alberta party under Mandel was that. You've got a former sort of mayor, cabinet minister of the PC government. He's got right of center sort of inclinations. They nominated candidates in a, in a lot of, uh, I think every single one, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, I think they had a full Yeah, they did, right? Yeah. All 87. And then like goose egg, right? They weren't able to get anything. Or sliver, uh, take enough votes from uh, the UCP uh, so that the NDP became viable or squeak through in certain areas. So the question is, I, I answer it in two very general ways. Uh, I think the NDP have their one core asset. Uh, and and, and if, you're, if you're an NDP supporter today, you are still uh, elated that Rachel Notley's decided to stay and run for that next election. Because let's think about it. If he was not leading that party, um, there are some strong individuals in that party. I don't think any of them come close to her leadership caliber or her abilities, um, as we saw with that, that 2015 uh, to 2019 stretch. So you got her. Um, the first thing that the NDP need to do, I believe, is, is, is um, think about themselves as a government in waiting again, rather than the opposition. And I know that's, that's part of that's just rhetoric that I'm putting out there, but the part of it is how they conduct themselves. They were really good at conducting themselves as a center left and arguably in a certain policy division, center right government, implementing a lot of the apprentice agenda, one might argue, um, in their early years. Um, in, in government. So the fact is, how do they see themselves as a viable alternative? I think center left, center right, it needs to go there. Many people I know will disagree with me, saying that the NDP needs to be the firebrand leftist progressive party and stay there. Uh, I just don't think that's viable. I don't think that's viable here. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, what does it look like for those who don't consider themselves NDP or UCP in this province to start propping up a, a third party? Uh, in a real way. That could be the Alberta Party banner. Again, sure, why not? Reuse, recycle. We've been doing it for a decade, haven't we? Um, for, for, for another party to, to come online and have a leadership sort of center base that has a focal point center, right? Those are two very general answers. Uh, first, the NDP needs to govern like their government in waiting, which means center left, center right on things, not far left, not chasing their tail on every single issue. Uh, and number two, uh, and I think more importantly, how do you introduce this, this middle ground party in this province that people have been trying to do for years? So it's not a novel thought and people have been trying to do unsuccessfully for years, I should say. Uh, but that's going to be necessary or else we find ourselves in that political you know, frame of you're down 35 nothing, 36 nothing on election night. And then you need to clean the table uh, everywhere else to even have a chance to form, uh, form government if you're the NDP. This episode of the Dave Berta podcast is brought to you by The Loop, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. Let's hear what it's all about. <clears throat> hey, I'm Tara McCarthy. I work at CBC Edmonton. And there's a lot of things that happen in this city any given week. So we thought, how about we boil it down to some of those top stories, the ones that make you think, or the ones that maybe even make you laugh, maybe they make you cringe. So we're putting together a new podcast called The Loop. Check it out weekly through CBC Edmonton. Uh, the Loop, you might be wondering, okay, what's this all about? Well, it is literally about keeping you in the loop. More importantly, it's all about going behind the scenes. All sorts of details, I see it every day in the newsroom, don't actually make it into those compact radio and television pieces that you see and that you hear. So we thought we'll take stories like these and we're going to find out more. We're going to talk to the reporters about some of the things like how they even found out about this stuff 
We'll talk a little bit about everything, politics, we'll throw some arts in there, community, of course. It's about all things Edmonton. Because there's always more to tell. There's always more to the story. I've been in Edmonton for about a year, and I see stories just constantly change. They ebb and flow. I'm learning new things about the city all the time. And maybe you've been here for decades, but there's always new things that we can uncover. So we want to talk about those stories right here on The Loop. Stay in The Loop with us, our new weekly CBC Edmonton podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, or more importantly, through your CBC Listen app. I feel like I have something in my tooth. Thank God it's a podcast. (laughs) It sounds like a great addition to the local podcast scene. I'm really excited to give this one a listen. Again, find The Loop on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it online at cbc.ca slash Edmonton. With Pod Power, ATB is making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, we're giving a Pod Power shout out to A Tale of Two Weeklies. A Tale of Two Weeklies is a documentary podcast series that digs into the rise and fall of Edmonton's C Magazine and View Weekly, two alt-weeklies engaged in a newspaper war that neither survived. You can find A Tale of Two Weeklies wherever pods are cast or visit taleoftwoweeklies.com. You know, the on on, on just on, on a couple of your points uh i mean i joked over the past number of years that the, that uh that rachel notley led the uh the best progressive conservative government that uh, that alberta's had in decades um because you're right there were there were aspects where where the ndp were very similar i mean very similar to to mm-hmm. the progressive conservatives but it, but the point on, on the point of notley i mean she's very much their strongest asset on on election night and i, I don't know if i'm, I'm you, you you actually i think i saw you there you might have been there yeah. on, at the ndp party at the um yeah at the Edmonton Convention Center on election night. I mean, it was a, it was a, obviously it was, they lost, it was a defeat, but it was actually a pretty hopping party for that, as far as defeat parties go. I mean, people were, were not totally upbeat, but, but they were happy for Rachel Notley. And when she got up on stage, uh, it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like other parties when they lose elections where it's, you know, yay, you know, you kind of cheer the leader, but you know, the leader's done. There was no, There was no yeah. element. No, no, I, I could sense no element in the room of uh, Rachel Notley needs to resign now, and the party, the NDP, needs to hold the leadership race. I mean, they were very much uh, grateful for her, and I think there was a lot of recognition in that room that she was their strongest asset, and that she was the reason. I mean, she was the she was a big, you know, the the one of the central reasons why they won in twenty fifteen. But but it, I mean, she was one of the biggest reasons why they held on to twenty four seats. In, in the last election. Mm-hmm. I mean, Notley, Notley is the face of, and, and she is the NDP in Alberta. She, she carries them very much. And, and I think you're right. There are some strong, definitely some strong candidates uh, to replace her. I, you know, Sarah Hoffman, Shannon Phillips uh, are two that immediately come to mind. But, but I, I, think, I think anyone who replaces her would have a very hard time filling her shoes because she is such a strong personality uh, and someone that is recognizable and has the support of so many Albertans across the, I mean, across the province um, uh, and over the past few years. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. I mean, last campaign, the hope was that, that as the NDP team, we could make this, this campaign, um, Rachel Notley for mayor of Alberta versus Jason Kenney for mayor of Alberta. And what I mean by that is that the focal point, if it was on the two leaders and we put their parties aside and their ideology aside, 
she would be the hands down winner. And I think even in the, the polling to the to the final breath before votes were being cast on leadership, uh, she always outpaced him. She was always ahead of him. But the problem was that his party banner and his ideology would make up for that. His party was stronger than him. She was stronger than her party. So the next election also needs to have that sort of element being like, it has to be about her. Um, the fact is, I think the showcasing of the team and the showcasing of bolder ideas also needs to be there. So even though they're going to be governing from a pragmatic center-left, center-right approach, I would not mind that in, in next election, the NDP come out with some really bold sort of claims uh, and bold policies that, that can be fully paid for for this province. I think that's going to matter, especially on the heels of a pandemic, because the reverberations of this pandemic will last years, as we know. So I think that's going to be important. But it's also going to be important that that the frame is about her versus him. Because as soon as you introduce some of that conservative ideology, especially for those who feel like austerity will be the way to go after this pandemic, uh, you automatically lose a vote there. So if you can make it about her versus him, once again, I think that's going to be crucial heading into the next election. But I mean, we're prognosticating and pontificating, you know, years ahead of, of what the three years almost exactly to, to what the next election could look like. But I think those are some of the, the you know, the setting the stage pieces that need to be there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and looking at, uh, I mean, we talked just before we talked about municipal politics and how we have no idea what the 2021 election is going to look like. Uh, I mean, we have absolutely no idea what the 2023 election is going to look like. Yeah, totally. totally. And uh, I mean, what, one of the things I think is interesting is whether, uh, and I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about this in the past and, and Premier Kenny has done his best to try to uh, uh, try to quash this, I guess. Uh, but whether Jason Kenny will even be the Premier of Alberta in uh in 2023 i mean i think it's it's interesting the 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 moves that kenny has made um the building social license for pipelines in the oil and gas industry through the distribution of personal protective equipment to other provinces um the the promotion that the the alberta government has been doing on on facebook for example i mean this is very much building a uh, uh i mean you know, Kenny, the premier says he's using this to build a, you know, to build, try to try to build goodwill. Uh, Matt Wolf, who's the premier's director of issues management, has talked about how it was, you know, Alberta needs allies. And that was one of the reasons, essentially one of the reasons why they did this. Uh, I mean, I think it's going to be very interesting when the federal conservatives reopen their leadership race. Because, I mean, throughout the past past few months, the federal conservatives have been have been uh, uh, running their leadership race, which I think was supposed to be take place in June. And the two frontliners yeah. seem to be uh, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole. I mean, yeah. neither, neither of whom are, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say that, that neither of them could beat Justin Trudeau or the liberals in the next, whenever the next federal election is, but neither of who are, are individuals who I think conservatives get very excited about. And I do wonder when the pandemic passes, when the federal conservatives reopen their leadership race, if they will allow the entry of new candidates. I mean, I think Jason Kenney is, and this is just me, you know, openly speculating, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Jason Kenney threw his hat, hat in the ring, because I think this has really been, you know, his, his, uh, his goal uh, in, in the long term. It just, you know, a few months ago, it probably didn't look like it was feasible. But now uh, I think he's, you know, he could definitely be setting himself up for something like this. Oh, I don't know if I agree. I think, no? I think the I think the best formal case for uh, for Kenny on the federal level is Kingmaker, and you've seen him endorse O'Toole very aggressively, five minute like documentary style video pacing in the park, kind of awkward. But the best thing Kenny can be uh, in a formal capacity, and I'll, and I'll qualify that in a second, on the national level is Kingmaker, and I honestly feel like he still can be de facto leader of the Conservatives by being Premier of Alberta. 
Mm. And I think, right, like, and I think mm. that matters because he, to many, is like the people that they've sought endorsements from. He's still uh, in the conservative movement, considered to be one of the, the sharpest, the smartest. And I'll put my partisanship aside. He's sharp. He's smart. He totally is. Um, and, and most dynamic political players that they have in their party. I just think he realized, uh, you know, one of the best elements of any politician is self-awareness. I just think he realized his past and his social conservatism are to a level of personal belief that they're not palatable on the national stage. I honestly feel like he's been given that advice and has internalized that and that the ceiling for him politically, and I don't say that one order of government is better than the other, but that the ceiling for him politically is he could be premier for, of Alberta for as long as he wants. Mm. If he wants to do this for two decades, I honestly genuinely think if our political dynamics stay the same, he could muscle out victories every single time as premier of Alberta and still be the heart and soul of the conservative movement across the country. Um, who the hell wants the job of CPC leader when you can have a guaranteed gig in Alberta where you get to set policy, have a national voice because of your profile prior to, still be called upon on every federal decision, have tremendous influence as to what your national leaders do at the conservative level, are the keynote speaker at every convention for the federal conservatives, and then get to run a, you know, get to run Alberta. Uh, which assured guarantees. I mean, this is like the perfect spot for him. And I think he he would have jumped in in that last leadership race with with Shear uh, and and Bernier uh, if he could. And he could have. I think he could have won internally. I just think he realized he wasn't palatable enough for for the national stage and has been given that advice. Um, and so I still think he can be the heart and soul of the conservative movement. He just doesn't need that job to do it. Those are that those are are good points, and you've I feel like you've kind of blown my uh, blown my speculation out of the water there, Zane. Uh, I mean, I do think that I mean he definitely has been the the, the leader of the conservative party, uh, the conservative movement in this country. Um, I, I followed the and I tracked where he went when when he during the last federal election campaign, he spent a good week or a weekend campaigning in Ontario, and it was it was yeah, I, yeah. I, I never I couldn't imagine any other provincial political leader. Uh, campaigning in another province during a federal election, I couldn't imagine another one receive such enthusiastic, such an enthusiastic response and enthusiastic support from conservative partisans in in another province. Yes. They yes. they re they wanted him to be there, and I mean he is a he is a very skilled campaigner. He is someone that I mean anybody who's paid attention to Alberta politics over the past four years should say you know he should not definitely not be underestimated. He is a political beast literally he, he lives and breathes politics uh and and he does the campaigning very well um and yeah so yeah yeah, yeah i mean listen, you, you saw you you saw in that federal election like the guy is a wizard at at what you'd call engaging with minority multicultural communities mm -hmm. right like that it was his portfolio for a long time but you can see why he's so good at it he shows up to your event he, he knows your greeting. He knows your, your food that you eat. He knows to, how to say a couple of things in, in either the language or the dialect or, or the cultural community that he's at. He's amazing at it. I don't think I've seen anyone better. And he was used as that too. And I thought, and I thought in that last election, the federal election, campaigning for sure that they would limit him to multicultural uh, communities and engaging with them. But it seemed like in certain areas, Southern Ontario, other places, he was received just as well. And I think he is going to be considered to be, despite his young age, the grandfather of the conservative movement in this in this country. I know Harper still owns a lot of like puppeteering sort of skills within what happens with with McKay and otherwise. But I feel like in terms of active politicians who are able to implement policy in their own jurisdiction and still whisper uh, to their federal counterparts as to what needs to happen, I think he he has this gig 
for as long as, as he wants, even without the premiership in certain ways. But I think he keeps the premiership uh, unless things change on the, on the provincial side for, for, for a while if he wants it. All right, now we're going to get to some listener questions. So this is for uh, both you, Zane, and Dave to answer if you have any insight. We'll start with Mountain Ted, who always has a question for the podcast when we put it out there. Mountain Ted asks, do you see any indications that the Kenny government becomes more open to economic diversification or are they still oil and gas only? Zane, let's start with you. I mean, yes, but to what extent, right? So their investments right now have been all about doubling down. That economic diversification for uh, for for Alberta means diversifying what we do in oil and gas, right? So it's 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 less about saying let's look at marketing or tech or logistics or or environmental green tech. It's about okay, how do we find a different way to support the oil and gas sector? So they need to get out of that headspace uh, because at a certain point we're going to start having um, the the talent train. Uh, the talent sort of questions being asked, you know, there's tech companies in Alberta uh, that are having a hard time securing talent, A, because of the the, the recent sort of, um, you know, tax breaks that the government got rid of and the incentives that they got rid of, but B, because people are asking themselves the question being like, do I want to live in a place like this that's doubling down on something rather than trying to incorporate it in terms of a larger economic vision? So if they are able to see the light in some way, that economic diversification means diversifying between different ways of doing oil and gas. I think there's hope, but man, oh man, I I, I really don't know at this point if, if they're going to be seeing that light. What did you think, Zane, uh, of that message from, I think it was a press conference last week. Someone was asking about a Green New Deal and, and uh, Jason Kenney called that pie in the sky thinking. Do you think do you think Albertans believe that oil and gas is the only industry we should be pursuing? Like, how long can they get away with not truly diversifying the economy? Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk to people who work intimately within oil and gas and you ask them, you ask them a simple question. If they're at a high enough level, right, within within the oil and gas sort of ecosystem and you ask them, serious talk, do you feel like this is going to last? Almost every single one of you is like, hell no, this is not going to be. This is not going to be the meal ticket it used to be. This is not going to be the escape hatch it used to be uh, when you when you manage government poorly and then you have tremendous oil revenues to kind of make up for it and paper over it. So A, that's that. Number two, when you ask people who work in this ecosystem and are not running oil and gas companies or who don't have board seats at a, at a, at a CNRL or something, you ask them the question in a little bit of a different way, which is, do you want to set up your kids, right? You've got kids. Do you want to set them up for an oil and gas job? And I'd say eight out of 10, nine out of 10 are like, no, because when they have to actually think about the practicality themselves, they don't think it's going to last. They don't want to set their kids up for another, you know, uh, you know, geologist job. I mean, that's a tremendous education. And I think it's a really interesting and useful skill to have. But if they're choosing, that's not where they're like putting the efforts of telling their kids to do that. Two decades ago, that's what every single parent of of an oil and gas sort of uh, who worked in oil and gas sector was doing say go become an engineer go become a geoscientist go do something in the oil and gas sector it's it, you can make money this is this is still a a a train you want to be on but you ask people today who work in it day to day who earn their income from it who earn their livelihood from it and when you ask them about if they this is a sector you want your kids to work in most of them are like hell no this is not what i want them to do and i think that's when you get teasings of of, of sort of real talk where people are saying they know it's not going to last the question is, can this government um, stop appealing to that very small base of people 
who believe, uh, you know, that, that this is the only meal ticket for Alberta going forward. Dave, do you see any indication that the Kenny government would be open to economic diversification, diversification outside of oil and gas? I, I think with, with Jason Kenny in particular, I think, I think it depends what the answer kind of, kind of depends slightly on which audience he is talking to. I mean, when he, is talking to Albertans. I mean, we saw this the other day with his, I mean, you, you referred, you just referenced it, Adam, the comment about the Green New Deal during the press conference where he kind of had a bit of a of a mini temper tantrum and then kind of huffed off when when a reporter from uh, from 660 News, I think it was Tom Ross, uh, asked a question about, you know, about whether the Alberta government would be willing to work with uh, with legislators in the United States about a Green New Deal. I think that was the, that was the essence of the question. It was in reference to James. I think it was in reference to James, James Rajat being appointed as the, the senior representative in, in Washington, D.C. Um, so I think when he's speaking to Albertans, it's very much rah-rah, oil and gas. And I think that's, that's you know, they are a an oil and gas government. I mean, uh, Jason Markasoff from McLean's Magazine coined the term. I mean, I'm not sure if he actually coined the term, but he used the term. I'm going to give him credit. Uh, petro-patriotism. And we've seen this over the past number of years. I mean, the UCP has essentially wrapped themselves in in the I Heart Alberta Oil and Gas logo that the uh, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers campaign launched. Um, there are the signs in the legislature window. Uh, they very much tied themselves to, they are the oil and gas party. They are the party. This is jobs, economy, pipelines, the, the three things that they campaigned on in the last election. So in Alberta, I think, it, and, and I think it, in really in his core, uh, they are the, you know, they are the the oil and gas party. They want to support, you know, that that's that that's the thing that they've tied themselves to. But I I also think that it it there is some recognition uh, of the Alberta government, even though they don't. I don't think they're serious about moving anything provincially. When Kenny talks to groups who are maybe out of his out of the out of that uh, uh, the oil and gas, what were the traditional oil and gas sphere? I'm thinking of. Last year, when he spoke, it was either earlier this year or last year, when he spoke to the the Wilson Center in Washington D.C., he talked about, uh, you know, I mean, he 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 talked about uh, an energy transition, and he said that there will be an energy transition that that is take that will take place over the next over the next few decades. Um, but he he said that, and in the same breath, said that Alberta oil has to be used during that transition period. So Alberta, you know, the, 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 we've heard the coin, the last drop of oil needs to be from Alberta. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, I hear, I hear them talk about that uh, in, in those terms, but then I, I don't necessarily believe that's really where their, where, where their heart is. I think that, that they truly believe that, uh, that the price of oil will go up again and that this is really our, I mean, this is the, the goose, the, the, the goose that laid the golden egg will, uh, will lay a golden egg again. I mean, in some ways, the the Kenny government is 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 doing what every other Alberta government has done for the past seventy years is is when things are bad, instead of diversifying, you simply pray for the price of oil to go back up again. Yeah, and then and then I mean these things are cyclical, so the price of oil will probably go back up again. Uh, I mean we may we may get another boom, we may not get another boom like we have in the past in the past. Uh, past few decades we may we may not it may take may, may come next year it may come 20 years from now uh i mean we're, we're relying on a on a commodity that that is internationally priced and that we have no control over or very very little influence over and i think we saw that this path over this past month when the uh the the situation with opec um the alberta government par did part participate i think sonia savage did participate in a conference call with the opec plus plus group and that was heralded as kind of a 
of a solution and a way that Alberta could could improve prices, but it seems like prices have simply just dropped since then. So I don't know what to, I, I don't think there's any good way for Alberta out of this. Yeah, you the, brings up the, a great series of next questions about a Green New Deal. So this one from Spencer O'Hara, um, do you think it will ever happen in Alberta if it isn't implemented by the feds, given that we basically have two pro-pipeline parties? What do you guys think? Green New Deal in Alberta? No, not going to happen. I think Alberta, if, if and when we do act, and I see we saw action with the Notley government, uh, we'll follow incrementalism. Uh, we'll follow a more incremental path. Um, I think many feel like uh, the Green New Deal, even if they are progressive minded, um, is hard to pay for, if not impossible to pay for. And I'm using the American model and, and seeing if we kind of impose a version of that here. Impossible, if not uh, very hard to pay for. Uh, swift and uh, not understanding or empathetic enough of the job losses that would happen because of it. And really ambitious um, to the point of being naive in terms of implementation and goal setting. So I feel like if we do end up with certain action, it will be around the incremental path rather than a, a holistic in eight years, we're going to fundamentally change the, the state of our economy path that, that the Green New Deal proposes. Um, let me also be clear. I think the fact that the Green New Deal is in our lexicon, is in our politics, despite my sort of hesitation to kind of endorse it as policy, I think is great because the flag posts ambition and it flag posts uh, a certain sense of uh, idealism uh, as, as, as being possible and popular to the point where if incremental steps were going to be one step at a time, they might not be three or four steps at a time. And I think that's success uh, just because of the fact that the Green New Deal existed. So I think it's the fact that it exists, good thing, the fact that it would be implemented, or do I think it will be? No, especially here in Alberta. No, I think it's, we're going to follow a much more incremental path. Dave, do you agree or disagree? Uh, I mean, I think that I mean, th I think the the in Alberta, I mean, in Canada, the Green New Deal has pushed the conversation in a certain direction. I mean, uh, Zane's right; it's part of our lexicon. It is something that we're talking about. Once the pandemic is is over, we're going to. I mean, climate change is still an issue. I mean, it's not the it's not the most talked about issue as it you know as it was a few months ago uh, when we were having climate strikes and Greta uh, Thurberg came to Edmonton and we had. 10,000 people in the streets. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously not, not the, the, the biggest topic of conversation, but it's not going away. And it's still a, uh, a clear and present uh, uh, danger to, to our existence and, and to, to the planet Earth. Uh, in Alberta, I don't think that we're going to be implementing anything close to a Green New Deal. I think that, I mean, incrementalism, as Zane mentioned, I, I suspect that what's going to happen is Alberta will probably get solutions. And we'll, if, if we don't have a government that, in, that, create solutions for to, to deal with climate change we're, we're very likely going to have something imposed upon us from the outside so from whether it be from the federal government the rest of canada uh and we're probably not going to like it and that'll be probably the next round of uh big constitutional talks and constitutional mm. crisis in this kind in this province when uh when the federal government goes back to climate change and the other provinces like british columbia ontario i'm sure again we'll, we'll begin to move on, on climate change quebec um I think this is going to continue to be a big issue. So we're we're not we're not we're not getting away from it, but I don't we're not going to be leaders on it in it unfortunately, which is unfortunate because we do have the real capacity to, capacity to be leaders on this and Alberta would have a very interesting uh a very interesting maybe this is the wrong term but moral ground to 
take on climate change because we are such an oil and gas dependent province. And I mean, this is something that we've talked about for years about doing this diversification. This is using the heritage fund. This is using the resources available to us to do the R&D, to do the type of research that can move us away. We have the ability to do something about it, but politically the, the will is just not there. It's non-existent. Zane, you can, look can like you, a question. Yeah, go ahead. Can, I wanted to throw something at you guys because you, you brought something up, Dave, that I, I wanted to get your guys' thought on, which was based on the love that Ford is getting in Ontario from a lot of like, quote unquote, liberals and leftists, do you feel like he might give up his fight against the federal government on, on climate change or, or, or kind of dial it down a bit, even looking at the pragmatism of the politics to say, if a bunch of left of center people are, are with me, I want to keep them inside my tent rather than on the outside. Uh, I'm just kind of curious what you think the climate fight in Ontario may look like. And I know it's outside the scope, but you kind of brought it up with what some of the other mm -hmm. provinces implementing. I, I, I don't know what this is going to look like. Are, are, I mean, are people going to, are, you know, all those people who are praising uh, Doug Ford right now, I mean, how, 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 how strong is that political capital? I mean, does that disappear, uh, you know, a month after the pandemic ends and the month after, uh, a month afterward? Uh, you know, I, so I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. I mean, I think, I mean, what you're referring to, I mean, you might, I immediately, I immediately thought of the, you know, Bill Davis, big blue tent, you know, the big, big blue machine that, uh, that the Ontario progressive conservatives had for decades that, that kind of, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but, but I'm not sure. I, I don't necessarily think that Doug Ford is, I mean, I, I don't know the la the landscape on the ground. I, he, he is a, he is a divisive figure and I, it'd be very interesting to see if he, if he burns through or if this political capital disappears very quickly after this, uh, this ends. I think it's a question of, has this been a true transformation for Doug Ford? Like he's behaving in ways that have defied, I think all of our expectations of, of him when he first came into office as, as premier of Ontario. Um, he seems like incredibly pragmatic and down to earth, which is, which are two terms I don't think I'd ever have used before this to describe Doug Ford. So, you know, I, I, I can't really speak to his political savvy. I think that he's, you know, at his core, he's actually just like a, a kind of a man of the people, a, a true populist. And I think that's why he's kind of rising to the occasion here. He's protecting Ford Nation in a way. I don't know if that translates politically to him being savvy enough or wanting to hold on to folks on the left around climate change and that sort of thing. Like, I think when the pandemic's over, whatever that looks like and whatever it means, we might see uh, Doug Ford returning to his old policies and politics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear if any of our listeners from Ontario have any thoughts about that. Uh, shoot us a message on uh, Twitter or email and, and uh, I'd be interested to hear people's feedback on that. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, great question. We had a couple of other uh, Green New Deal questions from Chris Gusson and Biscotti Humphrey, but we're going to skip those because I think I think the answer you guys gave kind of uh, nullifies the premises of the next two questions. So let's move on to questions about COVID. Um, this one from Lost and Curious, the COVID crisis has given most leaders a boost in the polls. What do you think it will mean for the next provincial and federal elections? Or are they too far away for this the pandemic to have a lasting impact on those outcomes? Uh, Zane, what do you think? Any impact on forthcoming elections from the pandemic? I certainly think it'll have an impact in terms of how politicians conduct themselves. The question is, I would be more focused. I think the lasting 
impact of COVID on, on politics and political popularity will be what the leaders do in the recovery sort of stage in terms of what they spend post dust settling on this issue, what they spend, what they do, what they say, how they conduct themselves, how inclusive those policies are, how timely they are versus what they're doing right now. Um, so I think that's the, the, the next chapter yet to be seen. I think we're still early innings in the, the pandemic phase. So once that kind of finds some, some, some settling or normalcy or version of normalcy, what are they going to do after that? And I think that's where we look at the austerity versus the continuing and, 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 and uh, making more robust our social safety net as like the two ends of the spectrum. Where do the politicians fit on that spectrum in my mind? And I think that's what's gonna dictate their, their further popularity heading heading to the polls. Now, different different provinces have different election times. I'm looking at us in particular, still three years away. I think we're gonna have time to assess Kenny on his recovery uh, sort of uh, policies uh, and, and programs versus how he's interacted right now in daily press briefings, for example, and then piggybacking on federal government policy initiatives and calling them his own uh, in certain ways. So I think that's gonna be the true metric of judgment. What do you think, Dave? How does uh, the pandemic affect election outcomes coming up here? Yeah, probably too soon to tell. Yeah, though, though I would, I do, I do, I would just want to raise a point that I that I meant to raise earlier in our conversation um, about policies. That uh, I mean, Zane talked about how this could be a, a reset point for, or a, you know, a, a, a certain marked point for for new policies going into uh, the post-COVID. Uh, post-COVID world. And I think one in particular that I've been watching uh, that we've seen, I mean, every day we hear something about is long-term care and the prevalence of privately owned for-profit long-term care uh, and how we take care of how we look after our seniors and our elders in this province, in this country, um, and how vulnerable they've been because of, largely because of this, uh, because of this private for-profit patchwork across the country. And I think that I'm going to be very interested to see what our provincial and federal leaders have to do about that, have to say about that uh, after, after COVID, because it's something that's, that, that is, uh, it's a crisis that is very clearly in our faces right now. And uh, I think it'll be a top of mind for a lot of people. So that's my two cents. All right. Uh, next, this is more of a comment, but maybe you can we can get you both to react to this. This is from Dan Jay for Alberta Senate 2021. Hi, Dave and gang. I work for an essential retail outlet. I'm concerned that because I work for a retailer that not only sells essential items, but other items like flowers for your garden, that my workplace may end up making uh, smaller niche businesses go out of business. Walmart sells groceries, so they're open and the only place to buy certain things now, like clothing, DVDs, TVs, and jewelry. What do you guys think? Uh, what What are you seeing and hearing about risks to small businesses, given the advantages some of these big box retailers have? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's an astute point. Like, you know, for those of us who who run and own small businesses, uh, it is no surprise to us. But I think it is a surprise and illumination to many. Now, most small businesses, your mom and pop flower shop, restaurant, yoga studio, uh, whatever uh, that you that you access runs on such a slim margins and b very limited cash flow. And when you've got no margins because of no business and no cash flow because of no business, you find yourself in an impossible situation. You're not backstopped by the Costco's and the Walmart's and the Loblaws of the world uh, where we're, you know, tremendous backstopping. Uh, of, of these organizations uh, and, and institutions are in place, A, because they're financial. 
during the pandemic has been greater. They've actually been making money. I saw a stat that Jeff Bezos's billions have increased during the pandemic by billions, uh, his net worth, simply because people are resorting to Amazon as a, as a convenient way. So the fact is that small businesses, will they face a hit? Yes. Will it be massive? Yes. Do we know how big? Not yet. But if I'm sitting here prognosticating, uh, I think we will be surprised at how many small businesses are out of business. And I don't just mean in the restaurant industry where margins have already been slim and skip the dishes sometimes makes restaurants pay out of their marketing budgets, even deliver an order because they haven't been tooled in that way as, as restaurants. But we're going to be, I think, really surprised to see some of the businesses that we thought were solid out of business. So I don't know what that looks like other than offering that government support um, and in a way that, that tries to make some of these more sustainable. But it's going to be a huge shock, uh, not to the system alone, but just to our psyche when we see how many of our uh, small businesses are are just non-existent at, at the back end of this thing. Anything to add, Dave? It's it's a uh, going to be very tough. Uh, it's been a very tough month, and it'll be a very it will continue to probably likely be a very uh, very few tough months for a lot of small businesses. And uh, and uh, yeah, I think a lot, a lot of people will be surprised at which ones which ones don't survive. Um, yeah, and I mean that'll be the we'll see what happens when thing, when, you know, how many survive and, and when things start to reopen and when businesses are allowed to reopen, um, how many, how many re, uh, reemerge. Mm-hmm. If I can, if I can just add Adam, if, if it's cool with you, I think this is also opening up a conversation of big businesses. And we haven't really had this conversation in Canada. We're having it in the States where airlines are looking for bailouts and, 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 and large companies are knocking on the door of Washington with their hand out for, for massive payouts for for their survivability. We haven't really had that conversation here, but it's going to be fascinating to see what that looks like because, you know, you there is an argument to be made and others have made it much more articulately than I'm about to that in in the in the worst uh, and in, in in the normal times, these companies are outright capitalist treating customers maybe poorly or or insufficiently. And now that we're in this crisis, they all talk about the fact that we're in it together while they have their hand out in Washington to get checks. We haven't seen that here, but there is something to be said to be prepared for that conversation to enter our psyche and our zeitgeist where some of our our larger institutional Canadian-owned companies will be talking to Ottawa. And what is our collective response to that as citizens who, who are would rather, I'd say, many of us would rather see a small business survive than, than you know, have some of these larger institutions make the case that they're too large to, to not keep going forward in, in, in any real sense. So I think that conversation is yet to be had in our country. It's, it's happening like live wire right now in the States, but I'm fascinated to see what, where we kind of collectively stand as a country on that. Yeah, def- definitely yeah. coming soon. Yeah, that, 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 that's an interesting interesting point because, I mean, we haven't really had that conversation in Canada yet, but I think the, the area that I'm watching is, are grocery stores. So we have a lot of large grocery store, large corporations who own grocery stores, uh, Loblaws, uh, the company that owns Save on Foods, um, you know, the Loblaws owns Superstore. I think they own Superstore. No, uh, they own Sobeys and yeah, yeah. Sobeys and Safeway, yeah. and then there's Superstore. And I mean, what we've seen is, you know, there's a real. I mean, there's a lot of gratitude, public gratitude, uh, and understanding that the people, the grocery store clerks, uh, the your checkout clerks, the people who stock the you know, who stock the shelves, who clean the grocery stores. I mean, they are very much on, on, on the front line providing what really is an essential service during this crisis. People need to get, people need to get food and they're putting, they are putting themselves in danger by being out there, um, you know, putting themselves in, in, in potential harm. Uh, they're exposing themselves. And I mean, there's been a lot of gratitude, a lot of talking about, you know, grocery store employees as heroes. And I really wonder 
where I mean I think that public goodwill will last, but I but I really wonder if the corporations that own these grocery stores, whether after the pandemic is passed, whether they will continue to their kind of business as usual, treating their employees like they should be paid minimum wage and, the, and that kind of thing, and whether that will lead to um, whether that will lead to labor strife, uh, private sector labor strife coming after 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 the pandemic's over, if the grocery stores kind of return to their kind of business as usual with their employees. Um, when there has been so much public goodwill uh, uh, generated for these uh, for these these working working Canadians, well, there's a point to be made there, Dave. Like, or the alternative is they see the writing on the wall. They realize that their 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 frontline workers define their brand, mm-hmm. right? So they pay them more and they make them part of the PR pitch, right? Like we saw Loblaws in the last. Uh, you know, I think it got unearthed just in the heels of the last election, got billions of dollars from the federal government to like do stuff like run refrigeration pilots and do all this sort of stuff. So do they realize that the new normal for them is to is to put up the poster of the frontline workers as, you know, using the term essential service even beyond the pandemic, which is what a grocery store is. And I don't think any of them have done that prior to calling themselves that branding themselves in that PR cloth. Uh, and I think it gives them an opportunity. This is my Machiavellian hat on that they that they pay them a little bit more. And we don't see Galen Weston talking about Loblaws anymore. We see a, a person who stocks shelves and, and, and a clerk who's been there for 15 years and why they continue to be involved with the Loblaws brand of companies. So I think there's also that sort of possibility um, that I think they're going to pick up on as, as they've seen the goodwill for, for themselves um, as, as organizations and as such essential services uh, rise in, the, in, that, in that branding uh, over the last couple of months. Yeah, you're right. They had the 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 Galen Weston videos, the Facebook videos have disappeared. The uh, the awkward holding of hands and the the strange collar that he was wearing in his in his uh, his studio kitchen. You're right. Yeah, right. I mean, I, 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 mean, I haven't seen them in a few weeks. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I and I think they're picking up on it to that point, mm-hmm. uh, realizing that they're they're getting some amazing sort of PR from the fact that they're an essential service providing, uh, being provided by by, by these. Uh, by by what they'd call essential workers. All right, fellas, we've got a few more questions in the mailbag, but I think we're going to have to save those for another time, Dave. We got a ton, and we will try our best to get to them in the next episode. But thank you for uh, thank you for submitting your questions, everyone. And Zane and Dave, thanks for your studious answers. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, thanks everybody for the questions. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much to Zane Velji for joining us today. Thanks so much, Zane. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I know we've been talking about it for a few months and uh, and I'm really glad that uh, that we could finally have you on. Oh yeah, happy to be here. I, I hope I didn't take the conversation in a direction that uh, that was that was useless to people listening, but I, I had a good time talking about it. And I think there's so much more to unpack from some of the, the threads that we've been dangling on today. We'll definitely have you on again, Zane, I think. Uh, absolutely, love we'd, we'd love to. Uh, thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. Send us your feedback or ask any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter at, at DaveBerta or on Instagram at the same handle. And you can uh, find us on Facebook uh, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. Uh, you can also leave a review wherever you download this podcast. We love reviews. Uh, wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Stay at home if you can. And especially if you are sick. Stay safe, and thank you again for listening.